Hi, I'm Aviva Rumani, and this is Kindred Cast, a bi-weekly podcast featuring insights from dealmakers and thought leaders from the world of tech, media, and everything in between. Kindred Cast is a production of Kindred Media, powered by LionTree. Today, we're presenting a conversation between Imagine Entertainment co-founder and superstar producer Brian Grazer and Reed F., CEO and chief curator Jason Hirshhorn. This talk was recorded live at Lion Tree's annual Media 2.0 conference, which took place in LA, and features a cross-section of thought leaders from the media, entertainment, and tech space. A multi-award-winning producer, along with his co-founder, Ron Howard, Brian talks about the state of storytelling in the digital age, as well as his just-released best-selling new book, Face to Face, The Art of the Human Connection. To hear more content from Media 2.0, search and subscribe to Conversations from Media 2.0 wherever you're listening to this podcast. Enjoy. So you and I know each other a little, but I really would like to understand where did you come from? What is your history (laughs) and how did you and Ron meet up to basically be one of the most important partnerships in the history of media? Well, thank you, by the way. Yeah, I believe that too. Okay, so shorter version would be, I was going to go to USC Law School, got accepted to USC Law School, but realized I needed a job in that summer. So I lived in an apartment complex in Santa Monica and I overheard these three law school graduates in a conversation. And one guy says, oh, I just left the cushiest job. And I thought like, what could be the cushiest job? And so I opened the window so the screen was there uh, and I closed the drape so I could put my ear against the screen. And the guy goes, oh, it was so easy. I worked with this guy that started with Jack Warner. His name is Peter Connect. He ran the legal department at Warner Brothers. It was revealed that he just quit like that day. And so I thought, I'm just going to get the number of Warner Brothers. I knew nothing about film and entertainment. Zero, absolutely zero. Really zero in that I wasn't even a cinephile. I didn't really look at movies much. Anyway, I called the number 843-6000, which was the number of Warner Brothers at the time. And I asked for Peter Connect, legal. I get his assistant on the phone. I now have a meeting that day at three o'clock. So I get to meet Peter Connect that day because they were, of course, in need of a law clerk. And they hire me like that, just that fast. So now I have this tiny little office with a company car and at the brand of Warner Brothers. The office is from here to there and no windows, very tiny little office. And my job is when they need papers to be delivered, I was the one that was supposed to deliver the papers. They didn't have much to do for a whole week. And then eventually they go, we'll deliver these papers. It's regarding Heaven Can Wait. Deliver them to Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty was the biggest star in the world for multiple reasons. I go, okay. So I get in there Pontiac Bonneville and I drive to the Beverly Wilshire Hotel where he was living and that's where he worked out of. He had a penthouse and somebody comes down and says, give me the papers. And I say, I have to hand them to Mr. Beatty directly. And the guy goes like, give me the fucking papers. And, and I have to ask you there, was <laughs> yeah. that true? You needed to hand it to him no, directly? No, I just I love- made that up. Got it. (laughs) No. So I was kind of pushy about it or convincing. I said, no, no, no. The papers for them to be valid have to be handed to Mr. Beatty directly. Actually, I never tell this story. It's a digression. But I was a process server (laughs) while I was in college to make extra money. So I sort of- Divorce, movie stars. Yeah. So maybe that's where I pulled that from the premise of that because you do have to hand directly. 
Anyway, so now I'm getting to stand face-to-face with Warren Beatty, and I immediately invent a conversation. I don't pause, I don't do small talk, but I really kick it up to where I'm interesting to him enough that I turned it into an hour-long conversation where we sat down and drank espressos. I thought, well, this is amazing. I can do this all the time. And I did reflect, you know, of course, driving back, like not just the star trip of it all. More importantly, he was explaining to me his perspective on show business on some level. And of course, that leads to demystifying the language of the entertainment business, like how this all works, you know, because it's so opaque. And I could even see that as a 22-year-old But what's fascinating about this is that I'm not big on rules. I think we live in the world of LinkedIn and seven ways to do this and how to get your company sold. Yeah. And you made an on-the-spot decision in all three of those situations that put you towards more information, better insight, better connection. Is that something that you learned from childhood? I didn't see it as being a plan as much as it was a reaction to people. It was like a survival mechanism because I had quite acute dyslexia. I mean, I got straight Fs. And so therefore, I had to find other ways to learn. And I found that I could learn by conversations. And there was many other benefits other than just the information through a conversation. But I could really exercise my curious nature, which I know you have too. It is really an engine for me, this curiosity engine. And I wrote a book about it called A Curious Mind, The Secret to a Bigger Life. Around the sixth or seventh grade, I had the faint ability to read a little bit. And then I thought, well, I could put these two components together and it's really quite an additive equation. I just found that through face-to-face communication, you gained a lot. And if you could read, which became something I could do, it was very, very valuable. So I could I, I research find it, people. You know, maybe you wanted to go into business law, but you would have been better as a trial attorney <laughs> telling stories. Probably, yes. Yep. So if we fast forward into the future, Imagine is something that's been around since I'm a child. If I think about Splash, if I think about Far and Away, if I think about all the movies that you put Bowfinger, for those of you that love Bowfinger, your producer credit, Ron Howard, your partner's producing, acting, and writing credit is insane. Now you're looking at an entire landscape with some of the people in this room and the whole idea of distribution, the whole idea of different kinds of stories being told, at least in terms of where you're watching them, how they're filmed, What are you seeing in the entertainment and media space right now where you think there's opportunity? I know in recent years, you took in money from Rain, and you seem actually more independent before when you had a really good life with the big studios. I was more independent when I was at studios. No, no, you were more independent now than ever before. Yeah, exactly. Well, I am because at studios, I had a television deal at Fox where I did 24, Arrested Development, and Empire, and a few others. And then that would last about 17 years. And then a Universal for about 25 years, right? I have a first look, but the first look was really more than that. And I made a lot of movies there. And that was a really productive relationship I had. But I think I saw that the world was changing. You know, our content space is changing. And that it would be better to not have a first look to anybody where I could be agnostic and go to all platforms. And... All of the movies and television and stories, I guess, that I do are built out of a theme. The theme can take shape in many different types of stories. So I'm only interested in like a few different themes. I mean, enough that I can produce 100 movies and television shows, which are all startups, as you know. They seem to me to be 
ordinary people that do extraordinary things. Yes. At least that's a theme. Yeah, the that is a theme. Underdog stories. I like to celebrate greatness. And sometimes it's preceded by selflessness. So I made a fireman movie quite a long time ago with De Niro and a few others called Backdraft. And I like the selfless nature of firemen. They're heroes. Of course, Apollo 13. And that's about astronauts. And so I do like uh, to do what you just said. They're underdog stories. They're stories often of creating triumph from an underdog position or surviving. It's a pretty big category. The reason I ask that is that in many ways, it was safe to stay with the studios, with Universal and Fox. Yeah. They are asking for more and giving less, maybe in certain cases. And in many ways, Imagine 2.0 seems to me to be underdogs that are going to take it to success. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, so you're writing your own script. So what did you <laughs> see out there that was scaring you, but also where you saw opportunity? Well, I saw that my appetite widened as opposed to narrowed, and that I became very interested in not just movies and television shows, which are sort of finite time parameters, but I liked all sizes and shapes. So I like short form and I love documentaries because to me, they get to prove out cinematic equations. You know, you'll have an idea or a belief. And then in order to prove it out, the documentary, you have to grab all these archives and assemble it. And often what you set to prove out varies from how it started. And when you go with the success of 24, all your big films, and you go to your backers at the studios or buyers. Yeah. I got to imagine that they think things like Mars or a Beatles doc or a Pavarotti doc is not a good use of your money-making time. Okay, very good. That is the actual tangible real reason. Got it. So let's name names. No, I'm <laughs> yeah. So when we were at Fox, look, anybody would want the person that was involved in 24 to keep making 24s. And we did that for quite a while. We did like many years of 24. But then there were things that interested me like to do with Elon Musk, this whole series and this landscape of adventure into space and understanding man's quest for outer space. You know, the Fox people wouldn't initially want me to put a lot of time and energy in doing a series called Genius. But I mean, I like genius and I like demystifying, understanding stuff. So I always felt like doing Genius and the first 10 hours was on Albert Einstein it was not just about Albert Einstein, it's sort of a how-to. And you get to teach kids and people, you get to be aspirational. So all the movies and television or short form or any story that we do has to have redemption. Now I fail, you know, failure is just part of it because you're taking risk. They have to have the intentionality of redemptiveness. The ingredients of a horror film, redemptiveness is not an ingredient. So as successful as they are, and I would respect the success of them, I just don't want to send out bad vibes. It's fascinating. So I asked a television network head, I said, if you think about what's going on in culture today, if you think about underrepresentation of people other than they're white in film and TV, do you ever look at the narratives as a whole? Like literally take an inventory and say, what messages are we sending out there gender-wise? What messages are we sending out there race-wise and messages? You actually have that filter for your content. What they said I to do. me was... We would never tell a creative what to do. But if you do step back and look at the overall, there may be some areas that you need to fix. Yeah, Not you, but definitely. the networks. Well, yeah, I'm very conscious of that. But I have this discipline that you're very aware of that for 35 years, every week, I deliberately disrupt my comfort zone and meet somebody. I reach out. It sometimes takes years to, to meet the person that I want to meet. So I have it kind of a revolving basis. But that's how but, we met. That's how we met. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. I reached out to Jason because he had this incredibly interesting state-of-the-art 
Do you call it a blog or yeah, a newsletter blog? Whatever. Yeah. And I loved it. I lived inside of it. I would send it without letting people, I'd say, I don't know how do you become a member, but here's what it looks like. Yep. I do like, again, like disrupting my comfort zone for the sake of learning a language. Uh, it could be physics. I mean, I met with Edward Teller, who was the father of the hydrogen bomb. I don't have to agree with the person. I flew to the Kremlin. I don't have to agree with the people. I just have to be interested in them. Do I'm curious. I do the same I thing. I like being tested. I, I like being uncomfortable. I like debating with people that I don't necessarily agree with yeah. yet. Can you hold your tongue when you're at the Kremlin? Can you hold your tongue you know, with a nuclear uh, physicist? Or do you just ask questions rather than make statements? I can hold my tongue <laughs> because I'm pulling them out of their comfort zone. And I'm saying it's worth it to meet with me. Whether it's Jonas Salk or Princess Di or Michael Jackson at the height of his career, I'm acknowledging that I'm not living in the vertical line, their agenda that matters to them. So I have to be courteous. And so the way I'm courteous is to research them so that they feel like they're gaining as much as I'm gaining. The way to try to accomplish that is to through research and be really interesting and bring gifts of knowledge that they wouldn't ordinarily have where you could say, did you know about a song to Ralph Lauren? He would say, no, I don't know that song. I'd say to uh, Dr. Dre 20 years ago, you know, his music when it's, to me, the most successful, it's melodic. So I said, do you ever listen to the theme song of Exodus, which I think was a 1978 theme. So basically, you're sort of obligated to do that, to be interesting does and that, have them does, benefit. Does that work its way back in? Because I'd say as a student of film and TV, and I'm not suggesting those people are enemies, but when we see the good and the bad guy in, in film, it's often a multidimensional good guy and a one-dimensional bad guy. <laughs> what I find interesting in film going on recently, if you look at three billboards in Evans, Missouri, is that not everyone has three dimensions, that the bad guy has an origin story on how they got there. The Joker, which you'll see soon, has something similar. How is that curiosity and your connecting with other people, which is the topic of your second book, worked its way back into the narrative of your films and TV? Hmm. So Nixon Frost, for example. So what about that? So to me, that actually showed a different side of both people. If you look oh, back yes, at history, yes, yes, history yes. gets compressed. David Frost did a good job and was on the spot, and Nixon is this one-dimensional bad guy. Regardless of what anyone else thinks, they are well-rounded characters in that movie more than I've yeah, seen. Yeah, there are. Yes, yes. So like, did, well, does that sort of empathy for the other side work in? Well, I think, yes. Well, first of all, I think that having empathy is probably the most important ingredient that we should be all operating on. And that's why meeting people face-to-face -face and not having that face-to-face -face interaction be fractionalized by the phone and calls and bouncing around you're, where you're really connecting. Because ultimately, I think you guys are business guys. It's exactly what I have to do in telling stories. I have to case build. I have to evangelize an idea. So a mermaid or just what could be the stupidest of all ideas, you have to be able to communicate it in a way that people can relate to. So that's like an art form of understanding perspective. By meeting different people all the time, you get a sense of the variety of types of perspectives. So that is an access point. And then if I did 100 movies and TV shows, I had to raise multiple billions of dollars always starting from scratch. And so I'm sure that has some similarity or by associative parts. So you have to get people to believe in you 
they sort of work together. They believe in you, and then they have to believe in your mission. I don't know which comes first. It sometimes varies. So right now, if you look at your business mission, economics are tough in media right now. If you're starting off Brian Grazer and Ron Howard, the deals of old are not the deals of today. Yes. You walk into a Fox and they'll say, we like what you're doing. We want to buy it from you. Take your name off of it, plus 20%. You're right. going independent at a time where the, the deal that they want to do may get in the face of the deal that you want to do. What is a negotiation like now that you're selling to everybody, not only in terms of the new stuff, but can Brian Grazer and Ron Howard still make the money they used to make? Not through direct compensation. So say in the movie Eight Mile, you made a lot of money. I, off of one movie, I could make $50 million. Sure. So you can't really do that right now. So you have to find other ways to do that. You know, I like getting money, but I probably like winning more than I like money. But they sort of go hand in hand. And winning would So be that creatively? means you have to find the white space in our business because that doesn't exist in one-offs for 20% VIG on a project. So you have to think of like, how is that going to happen? What is going to be valuable? So I would say I have a content accelerator. Nobody has that. I'm trying to find things that people need and other people can't produce. It's interesting because in this world right now, you're more seeing people fill orders. The studios yeah. are saying what they want, whereas that's I don't see exciting. you that way. No, and that's not gratifying. I would. But what is the kind of deal books. you're looking for? The kind of deal I'm yeah, looking on for? a K film or TV basis. You don't well, want to give up all the rights. You okay, so on television, if you're asking a very specific question. We have a revolving fund to pay for half of our television shows. Some of these shows, I either own all of the show or half of the show. But then I'm then owning IP. So that's valuable because quality IP operates on a very high multiple. Ron and I only want to make what we've been making for years, which is high quality shows, shows that differentiate. We like being on this tightrope of trying to make high-quality shows that access on universal themes. When it fails, it's a big failure and it's embarrassing and you write letters to people like, I'm sorry, I lost money. But when it succeeds, you affect the culture and clearly you affect a global culture with a message. Or like in the case of A Beautiful Mind, it didn't start with the story of John Nash. It started with my observations of people that were either on the spectrum, bipolar, or just disabled themselves. And so I thought, I'm on a mission. And my mission will be to try to create a story instrument that helps destigmatize mental disability. So that was the reason A Beautiful Mind existed. It didn't even start with John Nash. It started with another person that was also schizophrenic. And as we were going to make it, I was going to make it with Brad Pitt. You probably don't even know the story. Months before we were going to make it, sadly, this schizophrenic named Michael who had graduated Yale Law School very successfully. His father died and he went off his meds and he stabbed his fiance to death because he was living in an alternate reality, another dimension. I still care about the mission, but I had to start with another story. Over the 35 years of meeting people, I'd met hundreds of Nobel laureates and I was aware of John Nash. So therefore that spirals into a whole other story. So ultimately the fact that you have this history of quality is allowing you to at least negotiate and get a little more or yeah. a lot more than what the average person is getting. Because yes. owning IP is a good thing if the media company wants to buy your entire IP set, but they don't yes. want you to own a going concern. No, they phone. don't. That's the way you're navigating and it really comes down to quality? Well, yeah, quality that makes noise in our culture. Got it. I mean, I know that that's what Disney and Bob Iger, people that are thoughtful about content really want to make content that creates a conversation in the culture. 
They don't want to just fill orders or shelf space or whatever you want to call it. Sure. It Holly- doesn't have value. I hear you. I've noticed that Hollywood reveres up north in technology. I don't know that the tech groups revere necessarily Hollywood, but I do see something changing where the hybrid companies are going to be the ones that are successful and storytelling is important to brand and important to telling your employees. You guys took a sort of a page of the book from the famous Y Combinator and you started Imagine Impact. As my last question, explain why Imagine Impact, how does it work, and then how does that feed into your overall business model? Do you guys know what Y Combinator is by any chance? Okay, well, basically what Y Combinator is, so it's like a VC that's a startup accelerator in the Valley. It's been around for like, I guess, 12 years. It's quite successful. Airbnb, a lot of big companies, Dropbox, have been part of their startup accelerator. So basically, if you look at it like this, for them, called Y Combinator, they said to the world, okay, anyone that wants to be a startup and be part of us, we have a thing called a boot camp. So basically, here's the funnel. There's a big funnel. The world gets to go into the funnel through an admissions program. If you get into the tinier part of the funnel, then you get into the boot camp. In the boot camp in Silicon Valley, it was comprised of many successful startup people that stayed on the board and stayed in the culture. That's exactly what we do with us. I realized because I started as a writer and I was part of beginning Aaron Sorkin's career on Sports Night and J.J. Abrams' career, which was on Felicity, I realized that original voices can come from anywhere. It's democratized. Even though our medieval studio system wants to disallow the democratization and create a hierarchy that is really kind of almost impossible to succeed on, there's great voices in Spain, there's great voices in the UK, they're all over the world. So we created a content accelerator I think we're in 90 countries right now. We're only into Impact 3. We have a kid from Zimbabwe last, Impact 2, had $12 in his life. He got through this funnel through the three-and-a-half-hour admissions program. He wrote a, an animated movie with the help of one of our mentors, because we have Oscar-winning and Emmy-winning mentors. He sold a four-way bidding war for $350,000, and he only had 12 bucks. That was So, so you're basic, I mean... And what we have I, many of these stories. I see that where time is running out, yeah. but many, many of these stories. So what I love about this is it's almost a hackathon for content. It is. What I love is that you're borrowing ideas and the best from up What's north. What's hacking out the man is what it yeah. is doing. Listen, you're the most curious guy. I know you're going to see him in the lobby, so maybe you'll be one of his next lunches. Brian Grazer. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. I hope you enjoyed our show today. If you want to check out any prior episodes, you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Feel free to leave a review there as it helps people find the show. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at KindredCast for behind the scenes photos and info. Keep listening and see you next time. Audiation.